Sarah and I were recently listening to a sermon by a man named David Pawson, who if you sat and listened to him, you would imagine that you were hearing Pastor Bailey. For those of you who were around years ago and remember Pastor Bailey's preaching. And David Pawson was from uh, England, was born in 1930 and passed away last year. And the, the message we were listening to was on the subject of the resurrection. And we're going to look at some of the thoughts. Um, so I'm just saying that at the beginning to say, I got some thoughts from what he was saying as well. It was an excellent sermon and I want to give credit where credit is due. We're going to start this morning by reading 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to read much more than we usually do, but we're going to read uh, verses 1 through 28 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You know, the Bible is always true, and the Bible carries more weight than any of us can say in our own words. The Word of God is extremely important. So hear these words as we read them together. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 1. In your Bible, this may be titled, The Resurrection of Christ, if your Bible has headings. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, 
By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. The word of the Lord, right from the Bible. If somebody could find the bones of Jesus Christ in a cave in Israel, our church would have to close. Our meetings would be pointless if somebody could find the bones of our Lord Jesus Christ. If he had not been raised, we would have wasted our whole life on a lie. It would be the biggest fraud in history for thousands of years that people have believed. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is of utmost importance to our life not just to our religion or our Christianity, to our life. It is of utmost importance. And the Apostle Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17 that we read. He said, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. If Christ has not been raised, we are still in our sins. That is the biggest if in history. This morning, I've titled the message, If Christ Be Not Raised. If Christ Be Not Raised. And we're going to look at four specific things surrounding the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. The first one of those is what I call a call to timeline of events. And I asked myself looking at this, why is this important? Why does this matter? the things surrounding the time leading up to when Jesus Christ gave his life and then when he rose from the dead. Why does it matter? And the one, the, there's two, but one of the big things, reasons that it's important is because it fulfills prophecy. It had to fit perfectly for it to be in accordance with what scripture says. We have an example that Jesus gave of Jonah. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 40. He said, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Another time, Jesus was with his disciples and he was walking, you know, near the temple and they looked at the temple. And Jesus said this in John chapter 2 verses 19 and 20. John chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. You can imagine him looking at the temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. And the Jews who were with him, they said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? 
but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. It clicked after the fact. They said, oh yeah, Jesus said that. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. So both of those examples were given by Jesus. The one of Jonah, he would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, or dead. The one of the temple, he would be raised up in three days. In Luke chapter 24, verses 45 and 46, Luke 24, 45 and 46, Jesus, or then it says, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So let me ask you a question. Can you declare the day of your death? I see some head shaking. Possibly. Possibly. Let me ask you another question. Can you declare the day you will rise again from the dead? If you did, would you be right? No. So even though this is Jesus in his own words saying, it will be like Jonah when Jonah was in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. It will be like the temple. Destroy it. I will raise it up in three days. It was his own words declaring that that is how long it would be until he rose again. And that is not humanly possible. That is supernatural. Not just the resurrection itself, but the declaration of how long he would be dead before he rose was also supernatural. So I want to look at that three days and three nights briefly. Again, we won't look at this really long, but it is important because it had to fit what Jesus said. It had to be three days and three nights, and he had to rise on the third day. So these are what we know from the Bible about the timeline of the crucifixion to the resurrection. Mark chapter 15 goes through a number of things about his death and the things leading up to that. And it says specifically he was crucified at the third hour. Now we're going to talk about time frames in a little bit, but you can understand right now that's 9 a.m. in the morning. So he was crucified at 9 a.m. in the morning on a specific day. It says the sky grew dark at the sixth hour, which is noon. And then he died at 3 p.m., which is the ninth hour. So we know he gave his life and, and died, physically died, at 3 p.m. on the afternoon of a specific day. We know from John chapter 19, verse 31, we will look at that later, that he died on, or he, sorry, he died on the day before a Sabbath day. It says the day of preparation. We'll look at that. We know from Acts 10 verse 40 that he rose on the third day. And we know from Matthew 12 40 that he was in the tomb three days and three nights. Now in our counting, you might say, how was somebody in the tomb three full days but rose on the third day? We'll look at that. And we also know from Luke 24 verse 1 that he rose on the first day of the week, which is a Sunday. So he rose the first day of the week. For us, that's a Sunday. We'll also look at that. We need to talk about one thing leading into this for us to understand, that they lived by a different day 
um, and a different calendar than we live by. We need to understand this. The Hebrew day began at 6 p.m., not at midnight. We're so used to the midnight thing when we say a day, it's midnight to midnight. But if you said a day to an Israelite, it was 6 p.m. to 6 p.m. We need to understand that going into this. Let's go to John chapter 19 and read that verse in John 19, verse 31. John 19, 31. We're going to read it. It says, Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Speaking of the ones who were on the cross. So what does this verse tell us? It was the day of preparation before a Sabbath. When did the Jewish Sabbath begin? When did their day start? 6 p.m. What day was their Sabbath? Okay, but look at this verse carefully. It was the day of preparation before the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. And I had to look this up because I'm, I'm not Jewish. And I, I assume most of you here are not and are not as studied on it either. Jews have seven high days in a year. They are not regular Sabbaths. They're what we would call a holiday. To them, it's a holy day. And you can find these in Leviticus chapter 23. These are the feasts that the Jews celebrated. They were called high Sabbaths, special events in their cultures, in their culture. In the springtime, they had a feast called Unleavened Bread. I assume they still have that feast called Unleavened Bread. And the first day of that feast and the seventh day were high days. So there's two of them. In the springtime, they also have the Feast of Pentecost, which is another high day. In the fall, they have trumpets, atonement, and the first and seventh day of tabernacles. So they have seven high days. So understand when this verse says Jesus died on the preparation of a high Sabbath, it was one of these special holidays. What dinner did Jesus celebrate with his disciples before he died? Passover. So that tells us which high day he died on. Because Passover was always the day before the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's their, that's their calendar. That's their day of holidays. So Passover was the day he died, and Unleavened Bread was the first day. So the High Sabbath was the day immediately following Passover, and he had to die before that high day, before that holiday, which again is the first day of Unleavened Bread. So we know he died before a high Sabbath. He rose on the third day. He was in the tomb three days and three nights, and he rose on the first day of the week. We're bringing this point to a conclusion here, but let's work backwards a little bit and see how this fits. Some of this is for interest's sake, so you know, because at the end of the day, for our walk with the Lord, a specific date doesn't matter that much as far as a date. It doesn't change our salvation or how we live for our Lord Jesus Christ, but it had to fit scripture. It had to fit what Jesus said. Three days and three nights rose on the third day, rose the first day of the week, all these things. So working backwards, there's probably other calculations out there, but this is what I came up with. 
and others have too. It would have, so we know also that Jesus rose at 3 p.m. on a specific day. It says that. He rose at 3 p.m., it looks like, on a Wednesday. 3 p.m. on a Wednesday afternoon is when he died. Make sure I'm saying that right. He died 3 p.m. on a Wednesday, and he rose, it looks like, between 6 p.m. and midnight on a Saturday. Now, for us, we think sunrise service on a Sunday morning. But remember, the Jewish day began at 6 p.m. Their Sabbath started at 6 p.m., and he rose on that first day of the week, which began at 6 p.m. on Saturday. So let's talk about that, because that would allow him to rise on the third day, according to the Roman calendar. What day did he die? Or did I just say? Wednesday. So what would be the third day? Thursday, Friday, Saturday. But that would also allow him three days and three nights, according to a Jewish calendar. What were the days? Well, their daytime, like we say daytime from sunrise to sunset, their daytime was 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. on the Thursday, the Friday, and the Saturday. And three nights... 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night. So putting those together, he had to have risen sometime after 6 p.m. on Saturday, but before midnight. But as I said, that's all interesting. Maybe if you got all that, you can have a conversation with somebody about it. But the fact that he rose is far more important than which day of the week. He rose. Far more important. And I'm not saying these things so you can go out and argue with somebody about why it should be Good Wednesday instead of Good Friday. Okay? That's really not the point. And actually, I was thinking about this as a side point because there's a, there's a movement I've mentioned before that, that people are, are stopping to celebrate special occasions and they're having all sorts of problems with Christian holidays and such. This is what Paul said to this issue in Colossians 2. 16 and 17. He said, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance or the importance belongs to Christ. That's the bigger thing, the most important thing. It says, don't be looking at other people going, why are you celebrating this holiday and that holiday? Why is your Sabbath on a Sunday or a Saturday? And Paul's saying, really? At the end of the day, these are all shadows. And the main substance is our Lord Jesus Christ. So what is of more consequence? That someone remembers Jesus' death and resurrection and celebrates it on the exact specific day that it happened? Or that they do the, that they remember that Jesus died for them? Which one's more important? I think we know the answer to that question. But it is important. It had to fulfill scripture. It had to be three days and three nights. It had to be on the third day. And you can't fit three days and three nights from a Sunday afternoon or a Friday afternoon to a Sunday morning. You cannot fit three days and three nights. So that we know. (laughs) But that's a minor point. Another major point that had to happen was that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament feasts. This is still under this timeline or sequence of events. What day did he die on? What feast did he die on? Passover. What feast did he rise on? On that first day of the week. Well, I had to look this up too because I wasn't studied on it. 
but there's a feast called the Feast of First Fruits that is always the first day of the week during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It is always that day. And Jesus rose on the Feast of First Fruits. And the Bible's clear. It tells us that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. So he died on the Passover. The Passover was when sacrifices were made. God passed over the Israelite homes in Egypt when they put the blood on the doorpost. And Jesus became our Passover lamb. He fulfilled that. He became the first fruits of those that would rise from the dead because the Bible says, we'll get to this, that everybody will rise from the dead one day. But Jesus is the first fruits and he rose on the feast of first fruits. He also was, he died or was in the tomb during the feast of unleavened bread, which surrounds the feast of first fruits. And we know leaven speaks of sin, right? And so Jesus was perfect without sin. So that was important. Not only was the resurrection supernatural, so was the fact that it fulfilled these scriptures. Again, this was supernatural. Important for us to understand. The next of the four things I want to look at today, this morning, is the evidence of the resurrection. The evidence of the resurrection. Few of us realize how strong there is, how strong the evidence exists that Jesus rose from the dead. We're going to look at this a little bit this morning. The evidence is not scientific. Science has to analyze by observing or by repeating in a lab. Well, observing is a problem because how many of you were there? That's a problem. So we can't observe it scientifically. How many of you can repeat this in a lab? Go to a dead person and say, rise, and they come back to life. So it can't be done, right? So the evidence is not scientific, but the evidence is legal. What happens anytime that there's a court case? What kind of evidence do they use? Well, they like to have eyewitnesses because an eyewitness is an exact account of what somebody saw that happened. And if they don't have eyewitnesses or they need other evidence, what sort of evidence do they bring in? Circumstantial. Evidence that would point to a reason behind why somebody would do something or facts that laid up that somebody had to be in a specific place at a specific time. These are circumstantial pieces of evidence. And both of these exist for the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Today, you and I are the jury. The jury's never an eyewitness, but the jury analyzes the evidence and says, is this correct? You know, it's important to believe that Jesus died because we simply have faith. We believe it. He died and rose from the dead. Faith is vital, but it's also of great importance, the proof that exists that shows that it actually happened. Both are important. We read those verses from Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's go back and read those few verses again. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 5 through 8. It says that he appeared to Cephas. What does that make Cephas, or Peter we call him? An eyewitness, correct? So he appeared to Peter. Then to the twelve. So now we have all of his disciples, that close group, are eyewitnesses. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, 
Then he appeared to all the apostles. Last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Look at the numbers. And the one that specifically triggers my attention is 500 people, most of whom are still alive. So the apostle Paul is writing this going, look, here's the eyewitnesses. Most of them are still around. If you have questions, go find an eyewitness and ask them if they can verify these accounts. That's powerful. To us at this time, it's not as powerful because they're not around anymore. But for Paul to write this at the time they were alive is saying, here's the evidence, you verify it. There's eyewitnesses, there's lots of them that will verify this information. So there's powerful eyewitness testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The other area is circumstantial. Circumstantial evidence. One of those is, what day was the Jewish Sabbath day? Saturday, right? Well, in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, it says that the disciples, the apostles, got together and worshipped and met the first day of the week. They changed their day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. Why? That would be like us and all Christians across the globe saying, we're not going to worship on a Sunday anymore. We're going to worship on a Monday. That would be a huge deal, wouldn't it? To get that to change. But these people who were, who were born and raised in a Jewish culture that said Saturday is the Sabbath day, they changed it. They changed everything that they knew about that Sabbath day and moved the day. Well, Jesus rose on the first day of the week. They were celebrating Jesus. It is circumstantial evidence. Another one is the disciples were out on the streets challenging Jesus' murderers when just a few days before they had been locked behind closed doors, fearful for their life. What changed? Why were they out on the streets preaching at the very ones who had murdered Jesus and they themselves had been hiding from in fear just moments before? Circumstantial evidence. We'd probably hide too if somebody came and killed our leader. We'd be like, oh no, why'd they take them out? Now they're going to come get me too, right? That's the normal human response. But then the disciples stepped out in boldness. Well, we know they received the Holy Spirit, but Jesus also appeared to them behind locked doors and they knew that he was alive. They knew that though Jesus had died, he was risen from the dead. Circumstantial evidence gave them their boldness. The disciples remained loyal to Jesus after his death. You know, if you remember the account, you read through the account that happens, what did Peter say he was going to go do after Jesus had died? Fish. He said, oh, guys, I'm going fishing. What would you do if everything you had believed for the last three years seemed to be a lie? The person that you had followed seemed to be a lie, said he was the Messiah and was now dead. What would you do? I'm going back to what I know. I'm going back to what I used to do. I'm going to go do something I enjoy. I just don't know what to do. Why did Peter give the rest of his life to preach about Jesus after he had said, I give up, guys. I'm going back to go fishing. What changed? Circumstantial evidence. He saw Jesus alive. And that changed him. 
He no longer wanted to quit. He no longer wanted to go back. He went on and gave the rest of his life to preach about Jesus. The disciples were men of character, is another one. They fed the poor. They helped the widows. These were good guys. They really were. They were also raised knowing that worshiping a false god was against the Ten Commandments, could be their death if they did such. So earthly death, even eternal damnation if they were worshiping a false god. How could such men give their life to propagating something they knew was a lie? Because that's the only other conclusion you can come to. If the disciples did not believe and know that Jesus rose from the dead, they had to be preaching a lie because they saw him die. Would they spend their life declaring the resurrection and life of a man that they had not seen rise from the dead and had not known, had not appeared to them? Again, circumstantial evidence. One last one here. There's lots. If you want to study this out, there is a lot of proof circumstantially that Jesus rose from the dead. One last one, in their culture, and this does not make sense to us, but in their culture, the words of a woman meant nothing on as far as legal standing. They had none. A woman's testimony in court meant nothing. Why would they have picked ladies to be the ones to see Jesus rise from the dead? Why would they have been ladies to proclaim that the tomb was empty? That doesn't make sense. If they were going to get called into question about that, the, the, what they said wouldn't have any legal standing. None, because it was ladies. Well, it's because they didn't pick them. It's because that's what happened. The ladies were the ones that saw the empty tomb. It happened. Again, there's plenty more. At the end of the day, somebody who does not believe in this can't produce the dead body of Jesus Christ. And you and I, cannot produce the live body, right? None of us have access to either of those. And this is where this evidence is important. But many Christians, many people, period, aren't willing to look at the evidence. People will say, no, I don't believe that that happened. We'll get to that at the end. Evidence is so important, but faith is also important. Because somebody can have all the evidence in the world and say, nah, I don't believe that. I, I, don't, I don't believe that could have happened. Evidence doesn't simply change somebody's mind necessarily unless they're willing to let it. Point number three, the consequence of the resurrection. The resurrection means that everybody is going to be raised from the dead. Jesus was the first fruits. As we read in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Then it has coming those who belong to Christ. In Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2, it says everybody will be resurrected. And it says to either eternal life or eternal death. But everybody will be resurrected. The word many in that verse in Daniel means a great or abundant. This is a bit of an unnerving thought. Because it means all the best people in the world to all the worst people in the world are all going to be resurrected one day. Some of the worst people you could think of who have lived in history are going to be resurrected one day. Thankfully, that's not so they can live and function on earth. That's so that they can stand, and you and I will stand, 
at our eternal judgment. If we die before Jesus comes back, know that we will rise again like Jesus Christ did. And we will stand before God one day who will look at our life. What happens then? Well, let's go to the book of Revelation chapter 20. Because it tells us what happens at that resurrection when everybody comes back to life. Resurrection, uh, Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. You get the idea? Everybody, even out to sea, anybody who has died is going to be resurrected. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were within, in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The final day. So this is important to understand. Everybody will rise. Jesus is the first fruits. We will all rise too one day. Those who die here before the Lord returns, whenever he comes back, will be resurrected, will stand in a final judgment before God. It's important to receive the gift of eternal life, to have our name written in the book of life so that on that day, when we stand before the Lord, he will say, there's your name. Your name's in the book of life. How do you have your name in the book of life? I think most of us know this, but it's vital. And it's something we should never forget. Romans 10 verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Believe is more than just to think about it. Believe means to have faith and to put trust in. So it's not just, oh, I think Jesus rose from the dead. The very thought of that verse is you change your life and the way you live because your very core, your very being believes that Jesus is alive and you live to serve him. That's the thought of it. It's not a mental exercise. It changes the core of who you are because you live and serve a risen savior. Amen. That is the consequence of the resurrection. We will all rise. We will all face Jesus one day. But understand, your name will be in the book of life if you live for him, if you love him. The final point that we will end on before we come to communion is the experience of the resurrection. As I said, the evidence is foolproof. There's a lot of evidence that physically shows, even for those of us who weren't around then, that Jesus had to rise from the dead. It doesn't make sense any other way. But that evidence is useless without the personal realization that he is alive. So we end with this question. 
What does it mean in your life that Jesus is alive? What does that mean to you and to me? Have you accepted this fact first? Do you believe? Has it changed you that you understand that Jesus died for your sins and that he rose again? Does it change you? What does it mean to you? The other question I have, a couple of them, how many of you talk to dead people? Please don't raise your hand. <laughs> how many of you talk to living people? Unless you're a complete hermit, you talk to living people. The fact that Jesus is alive means you can talk to him like a living person. Just like your best friend or your spouse, somebody that you like to talk to, you and I can talk to Jesus that way. Because he is alive, he's a real person, and he is there for you and I, and he loves us. So again, if you've never received Jesus as your Savior, this is the time to say, Lord, I believe. Let it change me. And for those who have received Jesus, understand he is your living real savior who loves you and who wants you to talk to him. So as we conclude today, before we come to communion, I want us to just bow our heads. And why don't you take a minute and you talk to him like a living person. You can do it inside your head. It'd be a little odd for all of us to start talking out loud. Do it in your head, but thank Jesus for dying for you and for rising from the dead and that he is the son of God. Let's thank him. Lord, thank you that you are alive, that you are our savior, that you gave your life for us. And thank you that we can talk to you because you are alive. Thank you that you are there for us. You are our king and our Lord and, and we live for you, Lord. But thank you that you are right there with us because you love us so much. And we are so grateful. In your name, amen.